Well, I've really got to hand it to you. You've been really hanging in there. This has not been the lightest series, has it? But I am getting the feeling that this series on the seven deadly sins, <clears throat> excuse me, has been generating a lot of conversations. The other day, I walked in at the lunchroom over at the office. I walked in, and there was a little bit of a raucous going on. And so I said, hey, what's, what's going on in here? And Cynthia Fantasia, who's our pastor to women and of service, she said, they're all trying to guess which sin is mine. <laughs> I think she was expecting a more compassionate response from me, but I said, really, can I get in on that? <laughs> but uh, anyway, <laughs> so far we've worked our way through four of the seven deadly sins, pride, anger, gluttony, and lust. And next week, Brian is going to wrap up the seventh of the sins by talking about sloth, but we're really not concluding the series until Good Friday. So I hope you'll be at one of the Good Friday services because that's really where it all comes together when we bring all this stuff, all this guck, and we bring it to the foot of the cross and we experience the greatness of God's grace and forgiveness. And so we have created what we think will be a very meaningful time for us to spend with, with Jesus and, and just experiencing his love and goodness. So today, I will be tackling two more of the seven, greed and envy. I know it's a lot to cover in just one sermon, but I guess you could say that I got a little greedy. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of nice to be envied too, I have to admit. Uh, a woman stopped me in the hallway before the first service, and she said, she saw this, said, oh, can you tell me what, 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 what the sin is today you're talking about? It's actually two. It's a double header, and it's on greed and envy, and she went, ooh, and I didn't know if that meant I'm getting out of here as soon as I can, or I'm getting the two for one, you know, but anyway, I think she really <laughs> meant the more positive. One author did something rather interesting with the seven sins by dividing them into two different categories, warm-hearted sins and cold-blooded sins. Now, which one would you rather have, right? Lust, anger, and gluttony are considered warm-hearted sins. They are bodily sins proceeding from physical passion. So warm-hearted sounds like it's not so bad. And cold-blooded is like we don't want that, but really sin is just sin. Uh, but they, 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 have, they come from different places. Like, 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 like Brian has mentioned, gluttony really doesn't hurt anybody but yourself. But that's not so with all the sins. Pride, greed, sloth, and envy are considered to be cold-blooded sins, proceeding from states of mind or emotion. And some may feel that these particular sins are more open to rebuke and are less forgivable. They may say, you're so greedy, or you're this, and, but we know it's really not true. All sins are, are forgivable by the grace of God. So today, let's talk about these two cold-blooded sins. It sounds so ominous, doesn't it? And I guess it is. On the one hand, greed and envy are very different from each other, and yet they're also alike in certain ways. Greed is simply misdirected love. Envy, on the other hand, there's just nothing loving about envy at all. 
but they are both sins against our neighbor. Both are sins against our neighbor. Greed is an insatiable desire for more. Envy isn't so much about getting more as it is hoping your neighbor gets less. The greedy person is delighted with his fortune. The envious person rejoices in the misfortune of others. Consider this saying that kind of captures that spirit. The envious person thinks that if his neighbor breaks a leg, he will be able to walk better himself. Well, it doesn't quite work like that. The tendency with greed is to compete with others, while the tendency with envy is to compare yourself with others. Either way, love is distorted, relationships are poisoned, and community life suffers. Everybody loses. Greed and envy are very much like the sin of covetousness, which is found in the Ten Commandments. These, these two out of the seven deadly sins are really uh, the only ones that really are found that we can, we can see in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So greed and envy think the grass is always greener on the other side. The greedy person may covet the neighbor's grass or house or wife, etc. The envious person just secretly hopes his lawn is going to die. <laughs> they both covet the neighbor's grass. They just covet in, in different ways. Nonetheless, both people are alienated from others, and both people really are quite miserable on some level because both live in a chronic state of dissatisfaction. Greed will make you dissatisfied with what you have, and envy will make you dissatisfied with who you are. Well, let's take some time to look at each of these in greater depth, beginning with greed. Greed is so pervasive. It takes virtues and turns them into vices. Preacher and author James Ogilvie put it this way. Greed turns love into lust, leisure into sloth, hunger into gluttony, honor into pride, righteous indignation into anger, and admiration into envy. If it weren't for greed, we would suffer few of the other vices. Quite a perspective, isn't it? This is why I think Paul minces no, no words when it comes to drilling down and exposing greed for what it is and what we must do to it. He calls it, in no uncertain terms, idolatry. And he tells us what we must do in no uncertain terms, it has to die. It must go. Colossians 3.5, he said, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death is pretty clear, right? It's rather strong. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which then he defines and qualifies as idolatry. It's idolatry. And so when we think of idolatry, we can't just think of, you know, 
wood carvings that, that people bow down before, but rather, as Tim Keller defines it, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. And so we can make an idol out of just about anything. We can make an idol out of, out of money. We can make an idol out of success. We can make an idol out of our families. And, and we just uh, can't allow ourselves to, because it will never be satisfied, looking for something in some places where only God can really give it, no matter how good those things are. By that definition, my guess is that we all have some idols in our closet. John Ortberg, in his book, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box, he talks about a common malady known as the myth of more. The myth of more. He writes, we suffer from a phenomenon called reference anxiety more often referred to as keeping up with the Joneses. We don't ask if our homes and cars meet our needs. We ask if they are nicer than those of our neighbors. We work like crazy to make it so, but what do you do when the Joneses refinance? <laughs> Orberg then relays a story told by Philip Yancey of a spiritual seeker who interrupted his busy, acquisitive life to spend a few days in a monastery. I hope your stay is a blessed one, said the monk who showed him to his simple cell. And if you need anything at all, just let us know and we'll teach you to how to live without it. <laughs> so you better think twice before you try that at a monastery. Like a child who forsakes his room full of toys, demanding to play with the one toy that the other kid has, greed keeps us from enjoying the things we already have. The way it works is that you really like your iPhone, your iPad, your iWhatever, until you see someone else with a newer, better version of the iPhone or iPad or iWhatever. You loved your car until you saw that commercial telling you how much happier you would be driving this car. And all of a sudden, you feel like such a loser. <laughs> but you see, a lack of contentment doesn't just stop with things. It could affect your whole life until you become dissatisfied with just about everything. You become dissatisfied with your church, your job, your chosen career path. You might even start thinking about trading in your wife or husband for another one. You see how greed robs you of contentment and why it is considered to be one of the cold-blooded sins? You might want to do this gut check every now and then when you start thinking it's time to upgrade that which are true gifts from God to you and consider it this way. Fill in the blank this way. The husband or wife that you want is the enemy of the husband or wife that you have. You see, many times we project onto others and we, and we try to hold up a standard that you, you are not making me happy. Maybe someone else will make me happy. And, and really, many a divorce has begun with this, this secret thought, I wonder if I could do better. And boy, that can really 
go in a bad direction. Fill in the blank could be anything. The life that you want is the enemy of the life that you have. Now, that's not saying that you shouldn't uh, try to do the best you can in life and try to prepare for retirement and, 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 and go for promotions. And it doesn't mean things like that. It just means when every time, you know, you leave a church and say, you know, this church is so much better because, it, you know, it has this when my last church was had that. And then before you know it, you're off to another church and you say the same thing. And then this job never really quite does it for you. And this boss has never liked you and the teachers never were fair to you. You know what I mean? There's a state of dissatisfaction. And that will follow you wherever you go until you realize that it's really a lack of contentment and not being content with the gifts that God has already given you. Another way to really keep this in check is to simply pray with the scripture in, in Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Would you pray this with me? Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You see, that's all he really wants us to ask him for. Not too much, not too little. Now let's take a closer look at envy, which we often use interchangeably with jealousy. The two can be hard to distinguish, so let me begin by explaining the difference between the two. For one thing, envy is always wrong. But while jealousy can often be wrong, it can at times actually be a good and appropriate thing. That's why the scriptures say that God himself gets jealous and how his jealousy is directly related to something we just talked about, idolatry, looking to other things to give us what only God can give. So that has confused many Christians reading the word when they come across that and say, how can God be jealous? In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is giving his final instructions to the Israelites when he says, but as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord, your God, that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything. The Lord your God is forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so how can that be? Well, I think maybe the field of psychology can help us understand better at this point what jealousy and envy really are and how they differ. Jealousy appears to be a universal distress response to the possibility of losing a loved one to a rival. So jealousy involves at least three people while envy usually just involves two. And what it is is that uh, you do sense that you're losing something that rightfully belongs to you, where envy, you're envying something that doesn't necessarily belong to you. And you're, you're fearing that something you love is being threatened and may give their affection to another. 
Jealousy is a protective reaction to a perceived threat, to a valued relationship. By valued relationship, they talk about uh, how certain relationships are those that give us what they call formational attention. And that means that the attention that I get from this person, it, whether, it, you know, obviously our parents and then people that we fall in love with and commit our lives to, and then sometimes even uh, bosses, supervisors that we really look up to and want to please, and even our friends, they, they kind of, by the attention and the relationship that we have, they actually do something. They affect our, our, the way we see ourselves. They affect our self-esteem and our self-worth. And when we feel that is threatened, it becomes this jealous feeling takes over and it becomes very difficult. So it's a protective reaction to a perceived threat to a valued relationship arising from a situation in which the partner's involvement with an activity and or another person is contrary to the jealous person's definition of their relationship. So it doesn't even have to be a person. Maybe, maybe you're jealous of the fact that, that, that maybe your spouse spends so much time at work and you're jealous that they're so fulfilled in their work and wish you, or you get the idea that maybe they're not as fulfilled at home or maybe, maybe it's out doing some other hobbies or, or whatever it may be. And so you can feel jealous over those things. So when the Bible says that God won't tolerate idols, it's really because he loves you. He values being in relationship with you so much that it grieves him to watch you give the best of yourself to lesser things, to allow any other love to have first claim on your heart because that's the place he wants to have in your heart and that's the place he wants you to have in your heart for him. He knows that you will never be satisfied when you make lesser things into ultimate things. That is a making of an idol. That is a recipe for dissatisfaction. And you'll always be looking for more, which is why Augustine prayed, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until we find rest in thee. So we can look all over the place and try everything, but until we really meet our creator, the one who formed our hearts and made us, we, we will never know what it is to have enough. And that's also why the Apostle Paul could say that to the Christians in Corinth, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He wants you to be all in for Jesus so that there are no other rivals in your heart, but that Christ is first. I wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea, though. I'm not saying that jealousy can't be wrong, because it often is. The Bible's filled with horrible examples of jealousy gone amok, because while you may value a certain relationship that never gives someone the right to become overly possessive, or controlling with another human being. And we hear too many news stories about domestic violence and people who ended up killing out of jealous fits of rage. And so in that instance, 
when you start to feel like somebody belongs to you in a way that is controlling and using power over them, then of course that is considered sinful. So, is envy ever a good thing? No. Not when you understand what it really is. You see, while jealousy involves losing that which is rightfully yours, envy may be said to occur when a person lacks what another has and either desires or wishes that the other did not have it. That's envy at its worst. It occurs when the superior qualities, achievements, or possessions of another are perceived as reflecting badly on the self. Envy is typically experienced as feelings of inferiority, longing, or ill will toward the envied person. So you see, you can't envy another person because without comparing yourself in a negative light. And when you do that, you diminish the person that God made you to be. You diminish the gifts that God gave to you. You're not supposed to be like anyone else. You're supposed to be the best version of you that you can possibly be for the glory of God. Psychologists also say that there are degrees of envy. A distinction is drawn between what they refer to as malicious and non-malicious envy. It is an understatement to say that Jesus was crucified because of malicious envy. Matthew's gospel tells us that Pontius Pilate knew it was out of envy they had handed Jesus over to him. Another example that is not so extreme is found way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. It says, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord had blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Now these are the pretty big, rough and tough Philistines that produced Goliath, the giant. You know, these are bad tough guys, intimidating guys, and they get so mad that Isaac is so blessed and has so many good things going for him. They say, come on, let's, let's fill his wells with dirt. We'll show him. <laughs> I guess it's better than killing them and everything, but it's still pretty spiteful, isn't it? Envy says, if I can't have something, then you shouldn't have it either. When envy takes root in the human heart, it is impossible to love our neighbor as ourselves because I can't envy another person without diminishing myself. I'm too busy trying to even the score of what I perceive to be an unfair advantage over me. And that's why the Bible says so simply, love does not envy. An important thing to keep in mind, by the way, is that we usually don't envy people that are very far removed from us. Envy is usually reserved for the person who is in rather close proximity to us. They, they're often family and friends and colleagues and neighbors or classmates because that's where it's so easy to compare ourselves with them. 
Anne Lamott is a pretty colorful writer who is so honest about her shortcomings, she could be painful to read at times. In writing to other would-be writers, she tells them that if they're going to be writers, that jealousy is something they better get used to. But according to the definitions I just shared with you, I actually think she's talking about envy here, but you can be the judge of that. Here's what she says to these writers. Jealousy is such a direct attack on whatever measure of confidence you've been able to muster. But if you continue to write, you are probably going to have to deal with it because some wonderful, dazzling successes are going to happen for some of the most awful, angry, undeserving writers you know. People who are, in other words, not you. They will buy houses, big houses, or second houses that are actually as nice or nicer than the first ones and you're gonna want to throw yourself down the back stairs, especially if that person is a friend. You're going to feel awful beyond words. You're going to have a number of days in a row where you hate everyone and don't believe in anything. If you do know the author whose turn it is, he or she will inevitably say that it will be your turn next time. It can reek of the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend. <laughs> Say, like, for her head to blow up. <laughs> Anne Lamott is nothing if not honest. But do you think that this is malicious envy or non-malicious envy? She ends it by saying this, you get all caught up, and this tells you exactly where the envy is rooted. You get all caught up in such fantasies because you feel once again like the kid outside the candy store, and you believe that your friend, this friend, whom you now hate, has all the candy. And that's where envy starts. That's why envy is considered a sin of the eye. In a recent magazine article in the magazine Relevant, gave a new term to, the, to OCD, said obsessive comparison disorder <laughs> is the new OCD I've coined to describe an epidemic that's plaguing our generation. It's our compulsion to constantly compare ourselves with others, producing unwanted thoughts and feelings that drive us into depression, consumption, anxiety, and all-around joyless discontent. The newfound OCD encourages us to stay up late on Facebook, pouring through all 348 pictures of our frenemies, <laughs> My Life is Better Than Yours album. Like having to run outside to light up a cigarette, our comparison addiction is uncontrollable and killing us, he writes. Comparison is always deadly to your spirit, always. You will never end up feeling good about yourself. If envy is a sin of the eye, then maybe we need to remember how the Bible lovingly refers to God's children as the apple of his eye. By the phrase, the apple of your eye, it, it literally has the sense of little person of your eye. 
referring to something precious, something that you guard and protect. And this little person of the eye, it's because when you get up close and look, you can actually see a reflection of yourself in another person's eye. That's the only thing that's going to heal. Envy, the sin of the eye, is to know that you're the apple of his eye and that, and that you can see yourself the way that he sees you. And so in the end, we will stop comparing ourselves with others only when we begin to see ourselves as the apple of God's eye. It's the only thing that's going to keep us from comparing ourselves constantly to others. Well, I can assure you that envy is not a problem reserved just for writers or those who like Facebook and social media. I happen to think that pastors are particularly prone to the sin of envy. When I was still pretty new on staff here, Brian, our senior pastor, uh, I, I was starting, I was having a meeting with him, and we were trying to decide some course of action when Brian finally said, I like that idea, let's go with it. And so I waited a little bit, I said, all right, um, you gonna write this down? And he just looked at me and he just went, it's all here. And I thought, really? I, said, I mean, I forget in five minutes. And so if you see me do this, it's gonna, next move is gonna be this, you know? <laughs> My wife showed me a cartoon the other day and here's this person cheering on this little group and says, what do we want? And the group says, our memory. And then the person says, what do we want? And the group says, want what? <laughs> in order to get into the office, we use these electronic keys to get in. And, uh, some, you know, I got to take it out of my wallet. And I get this, there's one for here, there's one for there. And I'm saying, oh, is this it? Is this it? And I, I'm always fumbling things. And I, I always have my hands full. And I've got things, they're just books and Bags are falling all over the place as I'm trying to get the key out. And then I look, I get in the building, and I look on the other side of the building. Brian is coming in. It's after a Sunday, after he just preached another great sermon, which is really great, isn't it? <laughs> Always consistent. It's really great. And, and you know what he does? His arms are full, too. And, and he just goes like this. He, he lifts his butt up, and... And, and, and the door opened. I, I even have a picture of it if you want to see it. No, I'm not that stupid. But I do remember looking down the hallway and saying, man, that guy's good. I'll leave that alone now and move on. Let me move on to Judy Pierce. Uh, she's the pastor of care and support, but she's not really being very caring to me at this time because she's abandoned me to go on sabbatical for six weeks. And so what if she left me to do the work of two people for six weeks? It's really not killing me that bad. Um, you know, someone's got to hold the fort down while, while others are taking extravagant trips because she's actually in the Holy Land right now. And I'm really, really happy for her. I mean, really, I, last fall I got to see the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit at the, at the Museum of Science and, 
and, and I saw the National Geographic movie, G, uh, Jerusalem, and it, it was 3D, and I'm pretty sure it was just like being there. I mean, every, every pastor I know has been to Israel, and they always say, hey, Jim, you want to see my pictures? I'm like, no, I really don't want to see your pictures. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, this is, yeah, I, how nice for you. I have these other two former friends, I mean friends, who are pastors. They went on sabbatical. They got $10,000 grants to go on sabbatical. I was really happy for them, too. I got to tell you. And they went to Israel, too. Well, I'm having some fun with this, mostly. <laughs> but you know where it really hits me, and it does? In the denomination I used to be a part of, every year we'd have something called district assembly, and all the pastors of all the hundred churches would get together, and we'd have to give a report of how God blessed our church that year. Only some churches seem to get more blessed than others. And sometimes my church got blessed, but a lot of times it didn't seem to get as blessed as others. They'd put together these big booklets this thick, and with, they'd give 10-year graphs on whether your church is going up or whether it's going down. How your membership is, whether it's going up or whether it's going down. How much money you raised this year, how much you gave away to missions. And I got to tell you, it is a feeding frenzy for pastors to just compare ourselves to each other and hate each other. Because we compare. And there were more times than one that I went to these assemblies and, and I just really hated it because I know the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes I found it pretty hard to rejoice with the pastor who just had another banner year for the kingdom when I didn't have such a banner year. Worked just as hard, I thought, but didn't have those results. Why is it easier for some of us to mourn with those who mourn than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. So I've had many frank conversations with God that kind of said, God, why is it that you seem to bless other churches, some churches and not others? Why is it that you don't seem to bless mine the way you bless those? And I've learned through Dallas Willard, the best way to deal with that is to pray for the success of every church around you. I don't do it, but I think it's a good idea. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's just good advice. But I found that prayer to be rather reminiscent and familiar. You know, because, again, again, you know, it's like, why is it that Billy Graham, I, I, I tell God, this is my, the way I talk to him. I say, God, why is it Billy Graham gets up, he sneezes, and 10,000 people get saved. <laughs> it's like, you know, I sneeze and everybody runs away. <laughs> but it was very reminiscent of when I was a kid. And I would often say, God, why is it that all my friends have fathers at home? And I don't. And I'd say, God, why is it after Christmas vacation that everybody has all this new stuff and I don't? And why is it that some kids have heat and I don't? Because I didn't. And that's where it starts. And 
lots of times in deprivation. And so whatever it is, you know, we have to be able, because I don't live anything like that now. God has given me all the desires of my heart. I am so blessed, but there's still a part of me that will always wonder why I didn't get quite as blessed as others seem to have been. And that's the time when I've got to just go to Jesus. I've got to go to Jesus with it. Throughout this series, we have been proposing that for every deadly sin, there is a remedy, a corresponding lively virtue that can be cultivated in our lives by introducing the practice of a healthy habit. So for greed, the lively virtue is really contentment. Truly being content, like Paul said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. And the healthy habit that helps us get there is generosity. Because when you grow up in deprivation, you tend to want to be, you, you, have, a, you have a mindset of scarcity, perhaps. But can I tell you that I really love to tithe? I, and, and there's a whole story I wish I had time to tell you about how I learned to tithe. But one of the things I love about it is it keeps my greed in check. That right off the bat, the first 10% just goes to God. There's, there's no debate. There's no thinking about it. It just goes to God, and it's, and it's always been that way. It keeps me from being greedy. It keeps me from, from when, when to, to be able to do something for someone that you know can't give back to you. That helps you. It helps you from getting greedy. It creates generosity in you, especially when you don't tell them about it. Now, for envy... The lively virtue is joy because I said, if you go around being envious of everybody, you're always comparing yourself in a negative way. How can you be joyful? But when you see yourself as the apple of God's eye, precious and protected and cherished, how could you not be joyful? And so the healthy habit that helps us get to joy is gratitude. And sometimes we just got to force ourselves to be grateful. And by that I mean just making a list, a gratitude journal that says, that thinks about three to five things that you're grateful for and give God thanks for it. At the end of the night, it's a wonderful thing to do. I got to tell you, this one day I had a really bad day. And, 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 and I had a hard time coming up with two. I was like, I'm thinking, all right, I, I, there's got to be something good that happened today. And I, I started saying, God, thank you. I didn't get, you know, West Vile virus today. Virus today. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you can always find something, right? <laughs> so whatever happened to our friend Asaph that we heard about earlier in the worship time, who was so envious of those he called the arrogant, the people who seem to get away with everything, even when they don't honor God. What happened to him? Let's go back to Psalm 73. We left off with him in the sanctuary. In the sanctuary, it just turned around his whole perspective. It gave him a whole new outlook. And this is what he ended up saying. When my heart was grieved, and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. I don't know if you've ever been that way before God, but I have. When I was asking God, why him, not me? 
I was being a brute beast before God. And I can tell you that God never stopped loving me. But I stayed there and he heard me. And you know what? If he can take the spits in the face that he took and if he can take the whippings and the beatings, he can take some of our anger and some of our hurt and pain because he descended into hell. And if he can descend into hell, he can descend into your hell. This series is about, it's called sick, facing what's, what's wrong on the inside. That's what we're doing. And I gotta tell you, we can't just stop with, with, with these sins. We have to realize that we can actually invite Jesus right into that place. That place where you feel so exposed right now and you don't feel very good about yourself right now. But he says this, yet I am always with you. You hold me by the right hand. So I'm with you and you're with me, and you're holding my hand, and you won't let go. And I can't let go either, even when I don't understand everything. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Doesn't mean you don't have other things, your family and lots of things, but it does mean that they don't have first claim on your heart. He does. Earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We get to the place when we really see him and we stop comparing ourselves to others and we look at Jesus and we see our reflection as the apple of his eye. And that's when we get to the place and say, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire but you. You're holding me by the hand. You're giving me all the guidance. You strengthen me and you're enough. You're my portion now and forever. That's why C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were probably made for another world. Because nothing in this world will give you that kind of satisfaction. So let's face what's inside. We're going to have, I'm just going to pray. We're going to pray now. And then there's going to be some more reflection time with song. Please just invite Jesus into wherever you're feeling that you need him most right now. Lord God, we thank you for who you are, for being enough. We thank you that we can pray with the psalmist. We can pray about our own bad attitudes and envy and and jealousy and greed, and yet we can also get to the place where we realize, oh God, how could I be so senseless, such a brute before you? And knowing that you've never left us the whole time, and we can't leave you. Help us, Lord God, come into this very place, the very place where we want more, 
this very place of being dissatisfied until you become so real, our portion forever. In the name of Jesus, amen.